just want to throw in a quick beginning here to this episode. This is the interview with uh, Papa Paul, my dad, and we're going to break this up into two parts. So it's going to end there probably a little abruptly, and uh, then we'll uh, bring the next part in next week. So enjoy. Talk to you later. Welcome to Take It Down a Notch with Rob. And I'm Paul slash dad slash Papa Paul. <laughs> there you go. So we got another special guest here, my dad, and uh, thought we'd take a chance down here in the uh, at Long Beach. Came down to, to visit after going to the property and uh, hang out for a little bit, try some whiskey, try yeah. some bourbon, and uh, so, and do a couple projects and stuff like that. And figured we'd stop for a moment before I head out for the trip back and do a little podcast. So, um, so how, how's it, how's it going with, uh, you've been, you're down at the beach now. Yeah. Been here for how many years? Been here 10 years, just over 10 years. It was uh, 10 years in, I think, February. Uh, we're just over two years in this house. Wow. Right now, used to live up in Ocean Park, north end of the peninsula. Yeah, and now we're in Long Beach, a, a suburb of Long Beach, the yeah. massive town of Long Beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're retired at the beach, but it's been uh, been a long, a lot of journey to get down to the beach. You haven't been here for forever. So yeah. you you were born in in Washington, right? Right. I was born at St. Joseph Hospital in Tacoma. Okay. In 1945, uh, my parents, uh, Chuck and Louise, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I'm like, I don't, it's right there. Yeah. Uh, at the time, they were living in Vaughan, which okay. is across the Tacoma Narrows, and so I was born in Tacoma. And then we moved uh, from there when I was about two. We moved to Wenatchee, and that's where I grew up. Okay. Yeah, I forget that you were born on the west side of the mountains. Yeah. I always think of you as. Wenatchee, but I guess since two, that's kind of yeah, kind of like me in Hawaii. Like I was born there, but only there for a little bit of time before. Yeah, yeah, just a few months after you were born, we left there. Yeah, so, and then, uh, so you, so you graduated from high school in Wenatchee. Yeah, and uh, and then, what'd you do right out of right out of high school? Did you? I I was working for my uncle Buck. Buck McKenzie, he had a, him and his brother had a gas station, garage, parking lot in, in Wenatchee. And when I got my driver's license, he hired me. Okay. So I went to work for him at 16. And uh, that was just before my senior year. And after I graduated, I, I continued working for him until the beginning of 64. Okay. And uh, that's, when, that's when I left town. Okay. So. He had to, had to lay me off, and $36 in my checking account. Oh, wow. So, and I'd been wanting to go in the military anyway, so figured it was time. Okay. So you, you jetted off to the Air Force, and this is late 60s? Yeah, I, I enlisted uh, March 6th of 64. Okay. So the, so the war was going on and stuff yeah. at that point, and... Stuff. Yeah, I wanted to enlist rather than get, you know, caught up in the draft. Okay. In the draft, you had no choice what service you went into. They, it was split up between Army and Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, neither of which I wanted to be with in <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> no. 
Oh my gosh. So you so you went Air Force. Right. And by accident. By accident. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I I went down to enlist in the Navy. Okay. I wanted to join the Navy since I was about twelve. Okay. And uh wanted to be a aircraft mechanic on a on a carrier. I thought that was just the neatest thing. And went to the recruiting station in Tacoma and long line for all the recruiters. And I was about 14, 15th in line for the Navy recruiter. And we're inching down the hallway. And there's a doorway across from me. I look over and there's this Air Force staff sergeant with his feet up on the desk reading the newspaper. No one's in there with him. Yeah. And he looked over at me and and said hello. And he says, oh, you're going to the Navy. I said, yeah. He says, what is it you want to do? I said, I want to be an aircraft mechanic on, on a carrier. Yeah. And he just gave a great big smile and said, you know, we got airplanes. <laughs> and so I went in and, and took took the test. He said he, he could promise me aircraft maintenance after basic training. So I signed up. Nice. Got home and surprised everybody that I was going Air Force instead of Navy. <laughs> that, that worked out pretty good for you. Yeah. Yeah. From the, from the first day. Well, Dad and, and my stepmom, Maggie, took me to the, it was the Navy Pier in Seattle was the, the inductment area. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went in and raised my right hand, and then they handed me a plane ticket and orders, leaving on a bus in an hour to go to the airport. To go oh, to, my gosh. To go to basic training in San Antonio at Lackland Air Force Base. So I went out to the parking lot to say goodbye to the folks, and Dad asked me how long I was going to be gone. And I told him 20 years. Wow. And he says, I thought it was only a, a three or four year enlistment. And I said, no, I said, I'm, I already know it's going to be my career. It's going to be 20 years. Wow. Had you ever been out of the, out of the Northwest, basically, at that point? Did you? No. I had uh, gone to Alaska for a summer when okay. I was about 10. And mom lived up there. Right. And uh, that was the only time I'd been out of Washington State. Wow. That's crazy. So... So San Antonio, Texas, a little bit of change, change for you, I would guess. A little bit different, yeah. Different people and and. We we didn't really get to to see much of San Antonio. Right, uh, but and, I mean, just the the yeah. mix of of people from all over the country coming in and. Yeah. And. Uh, it's not well, like it. Not like it is now, where you, you just even through the internet, you get a good, you, you know a lot about different cultures and different yeah. people. I would guess you're fairly sheltered, yeah. In the, you know, the Northwest at in the '60s. Yeah, especially. Wenatchee was pretty much a 99.9 percent .9 Caucasian community. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, migrant workers came through for the the fruit crops, but right. they were migrant. They came in and and like picked apples, pears, whatever, and then they moved on. Yeah. And, so they uh, weren't going to school there and yeah, and it stuff was like that just. Never saw them. There was one African-American family in East Wenatchee. They didn't have any children. Right. They had a small orchard in East Wenatchee. And there was a Chinese couple hmm. and a Japanese couple. There were only three minorities I knew of hmm. growing up. Yeah, I, I did. In, in basic training, the guy in the bunk next to me was from Peru. Oh, wow. And spoke pretty good English. Yeah. But, uh, of course, he was very homesick. Uh, and he told me that the reason he wasn't getting mail is because the mail had to come from his village by pack mule to, t to the nearest town to be mailed. <laughs> so I think in the, 
in the eight weeks or whatever it was of basic training, I think he got two letters from wow. home was all. And I, I kind of befriended him, and, and he had, like I say, had the bunk next to me, so we talked a lot, and, and I helped him with his studies when he was having problem understanding things. And right. So, I, of course, we didn't keep in touch after basic. I have no idea where he ended up going. Hard, hard to keep track of people in the in the armed forces at that, yeah. that time because yeah everybody moves so much and you know, I I I never stayed very long on a base yeah being an aircraft mechanic you know you just, you move around yeah so you went from San Antonio then did you, did you go right up to Idaho from there or where yeah did you... I went to, to Air, Mountain Home Air Force Base Mountain Home Idaho worked on. Uh, I was a propeller-driven aircraft mechanic. Okay. So I worked on old stuff. Yeah. And uh, the main tanker they were still using, in-flight refueling tanker, was a KC-97 built by Boeing. Yeah. And I worked on those. I was on what they call recovery crew. When a plane came back from a mission, we went out and fixed everything that was wrong with it and refueled it and got it ready for, for the next flight. And we were working 16-hour shifts. Wow, 16. Yeah, oh Wait, 16 on, 32 off. Okay. So it wasn't too bad. You went to work at 3.30 in the afternoon, got off 8 o'clock in the morning. Oh. But uh, it wasn't bad except in the wintertime. Because <laughs> uh, I, I worked there, and and I I got passed over for promotion. Okay. Too. I was a one-striper in, in E2, and I, got, I didn't make airman second class when other guys in the squadron did. And I asked my boss about it, it Master Sergeant Martin, and he said, you know, the only reason that he knew was that the uh, the head enlisted guy in the squadron, the NCOIC, mm -hmm. didn't know who I was because I worked nights. Oh. And so about a week later at, at roll call, he asked if there was anyone who would want to volunteer to move down to base flight to work on the C-123s. And my hand was first one in the air, right? Because I knew I had to get out of that if I wanted to get promoted. And so I was assigned as a assistant crew chief on a C-123. And still remember my crew chief. You know, his name was Van Boven. Van Boven. Yeah, and uh, he was staff sergeant. But one day I I was out pre-flighting the plane. It was going on a mission, and the pilot came out. He was a major. And got talking to me because he hadn't met me before and asked me how I ended up in base flight. And I told him that I moved up from tankers. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, he said, well, why aren't you a, you know, an airman second class by now? Mm -hmm. And so I told him what I'd been told. And uh, he, said, well, he says, you'll make it the next cycle, which was coming up in, in a month. Right. And I said, well, I hope so. He says, no, you'll make it in the next cycle. He said, I, I sit on the promotion board. <laughs> and and Because he had checked, and, and on the upgrade tests, I had scored the highest score on the base Oh wow! of all the aircraft maintenance people. And that's why he was wondering why I didn't what, who, who, you, who you offended. Didn't yeah. <laughs> so so I did. I you know A month later, I had my, my second stripe on my sleeve. Nice. Yeah. That probably made things a little bit better. Yeah. Not being a, this, the, the one stripe. Yeah. A little bit more money. Yeah. You know, I, I think my pay moved up to $45 every two weeks. Well, geez. So, fog heaven. Yeah. Well, my first year in the Air Force, I still have the W-2. Yeah. My first year in the Air Force, I made $1,100 taxable income. 
<laughs> wow. That's crazy. But that was in 1964. Yeah. Know. Well, and you were living living on base and... Yeah, I was in and, the barracks. And eating in the chow hall, right? And yeah. Didn't so, really... Didn't have anything to spend money on. So you, know. you had... Did my own laundry, you know, so... Yeah. Because I just wore fatigues, you know. You just... So... I, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> How long were how long were you there? Uh, I was only there fourteen months. Okay. I got there in I think it was September October of sixty four and left in December of sixty five. So you got to do two winters. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we joke on the flight line in the winter time that the only thing between us and the North Pole was two barbed wire fences. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. When I when I left there, it was a kind of a surprise mm-hmm. because we. We didn't know at that time that SAC was going to leave the base, move the bombers and tankers out, and turn it over to Tactical Air Command, TAC, which was okay. fighters. And uh, TAC didn't want any of the SAC people. Okay. They, they wanted all of us to leave. And there was like 10,000 troops on wow. the base, something like that. The, the base had a higher population than the town of Mountain Home. Wow. And uh, I found out your, your mom, Grace, and I were walking around town we'd only been married not even a month and we were walking around town and and ran into a, a friend from the squadron and he told me i had orders this was on a sunday mm-hmm. and he said he'd been down to, to the order room and on the bulletin board there was a big posting everybody was getting shipped and i didn't have a car i, I hitchhiked back and forth to, to the base from town from where grace and i lived and he, he knows, he said, there's some guy down at the end of the block hollering at you and waving his hands. You know, And I looked down, and I, as soon as I saw that it was a tornado, I knew it was Grace's dad, Dale. And uh, so we met up with him, and, and I told him I just found out I was, that I had orders. So he drove us out to the base, and I was able to go to the orderly room and found out I had orders to Hickam Air Force Base, Hawaii. It would okay. be a two-year unaccompanied tour. But... Of course, Grace did come over. We just had to pay for it ourselves. Right. So that meant that, that meant that you weren't eligible for base housing for two people. Right. Just, just for your just for yourself. But, yeah. 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 To, to be eligible eligible for base housing, you had to be at least uh, at that time the rank was Airman First Class an E four. Okay. Later, later they changed it to Buck Sergeant, but uh, you had to be at least an E four with more than four years service okay. to be eligible for base housing. Okay. So, and and you didn't stay in Hawaii for very long, did you? Uh, two years. Two years. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I had to do. In fact, I, I. We didn't like it there very well. Right. It was, it's so expensive, and we didn't yeah. have that much money. Your mom worked at at the international marketplace in one of the concession stalls, you know, right? The sodas and stuff. And uh, it, that helped. You know, we. We had enough money that we had a we had a good life. Right. You know, lived in a nice apartment and everything, and and did get a car, but uh, it came up to where my my discharge date was only three months from when I was due to rotate back, and it wasn't enough time for an assignment. You had to have at least six months to get an assignment somewhere, and so that meant we would get extended in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and we talked about it and decided we didn't want to do that. Right. So I went down and I extended my enlistment by six months, and that put me at the at the threshold of getting an assignment. 
and so we, we left Hawaii just before Christmas in or 57. Okay. And went to Hill, Hill Air Force Base in Ogden, Utah. Okay. Another good one. We arrived there in the wintertime. <laughs> Eight foot of snow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you, you got into the, 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 you kept going to the epicenters of uh, high society. Yeah. The Idaho and, and Utah and. Yeah. Actually, we we like we liked Ogden. Did you like Ogden? We had some really good friends there. In fact, one of them I just reconnected with about four years ago. Okay. After that almost fifty years to the month that wow. I I found him, and he's since passed away. But but Keith and I were able to to get back and catch up on our on our lives and yeah. But, but uh, we were only at Ogden for it was less than a year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, at, uh, like I said, I extended my enlistment, so I was, that put me to where I'd have four and a half years when I came up either to re-enlist or get out. And, of course, I was going to stay in. Right. And talked it over with, with Grace, and, you know, Vietnam was still, you know, in 60, this was in 60. Eight now, right. so things were really, really hot. That was the big Tet offensive and all that stuff. So, and so I thought I said, if you know, when I reenlist, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get orders eventually, right? And that's I'll be going to Southeast Asia. And one day at, at work, uh, someone told me that I had orders. Went in and talked to my crew chief, and he said, "Yeah, your orders came down. You're going to Nong Khan Phnom, Thailand." Hmm. I said, okay. And as I got talking to my buddy Keith, he had just come from Nong Khan, Thailand. Okay. And he told me I'd find it very strange because they only had propeller-driven airplanes there. Okay. The fighters, the the light bombers, everything was propellers. Wow. And the base was classified at that time. It uh, wasn't really there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we and we weren't stationed there. Yeah. Well, at that point, we weren't in Thailand as yeah. far as... Uh... Yeah. Even though there were seven bases, seven Air Force bases. Wow. And 95% of the activity over North Vietnam came from Thailand. Wow. And between Thailand and, and the two aircraft carriers in the Gulf of Tonkin. But uh, yeah, that, that was an experience going there. I, On the way, I had to go to school down at uh, the Special Forces Training Base at Herbert Field, Florida to learn how to maintain the, the O-1 bird dog, which was a little single-engine Cessna okay. that they used for observation, forward air control type stuff. And then a plane that had just come in the inventory, the, the Cessna O-2 Skymaster, okay. which was a twin engine in an odd airplane, front and, front and rear engine okay. with a split boom. But, so we had to, had to learn that and then went to, from school, went straight over to Thailand. Wow. Yeah, but it was an experience. It was weird getting off getting off the C one thirty at NKP is what we call it. Non con phenoms too long. <laughs> <laughs> the mouthful. Yeah, so uh, yeah, getting off there and you see the the line of of these old World War Two Navy fighters, you know, propeller driven single engine fighter planes, the A one Sky Raider, and then next to them are these twin engine converted B twenty sixes that okay. they called it. 
A-26 because we couldn't have bombers in Thailand. Okay. We could have fighters. <laughs> fight but, and so the, the A-26 made it an attack airplane instead oh. of a bomber. <laughs> <laughs> the, as nimble as it was. So. Yeah. But it was it was a super airplane. The same with the with the A-1 Sky Raider. They could do things the jets couldn't do. You know, they're, they're lowered their time over a target. In the A-1, I think it was something like seven hours. Wow. If they had full fuel. But uh, the planes I worked on, I ended up working on, on O-2s. Okay. And it was a forward air control squadron. And, of course, the area we covered was the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. Okay. But, but I didn't stay there very long again. I, For some reason, <laughs> and, and I always volunteer. Right. And, you know, something comes up, I volunteer for it. And I, I never got burned. But uh, I got to NKP, and they didn't have a job for me. Because I was a staff sergeant then, mm -hmm. an E-5, and all the crew chiefs were buck sergeants. They didn't use staff sergeants for crew chiefs. And so they didn't know what to do with me. So they told me just, you know, roam around the base, check check in every day around noon, see if they had anything. Mm -hmm. So, and the base wasn't that big. And it was out 12 miles along a jungle road from town, the town of NKP. And so... You know, walked around base, there wasn't much to do. I, I did discover there was a library that was run by the USO. Okay. I spent a lot of time in the library. And then my, my hooch mate, who was getting ready to leave, told me that they were looking for volunteers to go to the OL-1 at Ubon. Okay. And I didn't know what an OL-1 was. Right. I found out it was an operating location. And I didn't know where Ubon was. But I went to the orderly room, and I said, I hear you're looking for volunteers to go to Uvon. Mm -hmm. He says, yeah, you want to go? And I said, yeah. Okay, you know, pack your bags. You'll be leaving tomorrow morning on a C-130. And I'm still wondering where I'm going. <laughs> I mean, it, it's still in Thailand. Right. And it was a much bigger base, but we had, it was a 8th attack fighter wing, which was F-4s. And then they had Spectre gunships there and some other stuff, some classified stuff. But uh, we had 12 of our airplanes down there and to cover the lower part of, of Laos. Okay. And, uh, and when I got there, there was 12 mechanics. And the highest enlisted was a senior master sergeant. He was the NCOIC. And there was another staff sergeant. So he and I were both assigned as, as supervisors, line supervisors. And uh, we didn't use the crew chief method. Everybody worked on everything, whatever right. needed to be done, which made it nice. We did all the armament loading, everything. And uh, we worked 12-hour shifts, six days a week. Mm -hmm. You get one day off, then we rotated shifts every couple weeks. So you didn't have to stay on nights or days, because days was brutal. Was it? It was hot. Oh, it was okay. really hot. It it would get up. I think our highest we saw was 117. Ooh. You know, and, and times at night where the, the, the low would get down to like 104. Jeez. And not a dry heat. No. <laughs> Very damp. <laughs> and, you're, and you're working on concrete, and, and the planes were parked on PSP, you know, perforated steel plate. With, okay. So it's, that, was, that got really hot oh. with that sun on it. So I, I like nights. But uh, we lived in hooches that, of course, no air conditioning. Right. Uh, no fans. So the hooch, the hooch is like a tent, right? Like a no. Well, there they were a, buildings. They were made out of okay. wood, and it was our hooch was set up in an H shape. 
Okay. And there were three rooms down each leg. And then the center was used for a day room, a common area. Okay. And there was anywhere from two to three guys to a room. The rooms were a fairly good size. Right. But uh, the walls were just screen. Okay. And uh, the roof was corrugated steel. And then partway down you had you know, corrugated steel at a slant to keep the rain from, from coming in. But, you know, that's, your ventilation was any air movement through. through. That screen. Okay. Yeah. With, with a, basically a, a heating element on top. That, yeah. That tin roof just radiating heat all night. I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I preferred working nights. Was, yeah. Uh. But uh, but then the, a new a new style airplane came in for forward air control, and so when they showed up at at Ubon, all of us O2 guys had to go back to NKP. Okay. And uh, I I'd liked Ubon because I I worked on the planes and mm -hmm. I, I I loaded rockets and I fueled and you know all that stuff. So I would pre-flight, I'd follow the pilot out the end of the runway and pull all the safety pins and give him a salute and point him off down the runway. It was it was a cool job. Right. But got back to NKP and again they weren't sure what they were gonna do with me. <laughs> so they, they made me the assistant NCO in charge of dock maintenance. That's when a plane has comes in every so many hours to bring in the hangar and you really go through it. Right. But uh, I wasn't even issued a toolbox. Oh, I was just you know, I watched what the other guys did and I signed off the forms when I was satisfied they'd fix it right. That's right. And it was eight hour a day, Monday through Friday, or five days a week. Wow. And it was just, oh, it was horrible. I just, I had nothing to do, Yeah, basically. M makes the days drag yeah. by. Yeah. But then I discovered the base had a, had a big slot car track. Oh. And so I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time, all my off-duty time just about was at the slot car track. Because <laughs> yeah. town wasn't, wasn't a friendly place to go up there. Yeah. They they had a bounty on us. Did they? And there was a curfew at night, and you you didn't if you missed that last bus to town, you needed to find a good hiding place. So the the but the they'd have buses that run from the base up to town. Yeah, it was civilian buses. Okay. And I call it a bot bus. A, a bot is equal to about a nickel. Okay. And uh, so it it cost a cost a bot each way on the bot bus. Okay. But it was eight or nine miles gravel road. Yeah. The town through the jungle. And ha about halfway there was a small village that was communist sympathizers. They oh. they aligned themselves with the Patrick Lao communist forces in Laos. Oh wow. It was a big Laotian population in northeast Thailand. Right. And come to find out that little village is where Ho Chi Minh was born. Oh wow. And there was a clock tower in the middle of town and it's a, he donated that to the people of of Nankan Phnom for their support over the years. Oh, jeez. So I made you, you know, and, and the town was right on the banks of the Mekong River, and across the river was Laos. Yeah. You know, and it's all, that's why at night you, did, you didn't want to be in town. So in town you had, uh, like, a bar, restaurant type things to do? Yeah, there was a, there was an ice cream shop. Okay. And there were a couple of, I went, I went downtown, I think, Maybe three or four times, mm -hmm. and uh, I ran around with two Hawaiian guys. Okay, and uh, they said there was a place that had really good shrimp tempura, and so they they wanted to take me there. So I, I went there one time and and went down and one place got got a burger, which their burgers were kind of kind of weird. But, 
<laughs> and then the, the squadron had their own place in town. Okay. And uh, I think on one Sunday a month, they did a free steak thing for the members of the squadron. It cost you a dollar a month to belong to the cricket club. Oh, okay. And uh, so you get on and ate barbecue steaks. And, oh, nice. So, and that was the only, other than that, I, I didn't really want much to do it at town. Wow. I, the library and the slot car track were good <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> it was a high time. Yeah. I, I didn't go to the NCO club. They had slot machines in the NCO club. Okay. And I went in there once, and I think I paid, you know, maybe played 50 cents worth of nickels right. in the machine. Didn't win anything, so I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. <laughs> you got better things to do with your 50 cents. Yeah. So went went to the club a couple times for breakfast because it was a lot better breakfast than the chow hall. And other than that, I, I stayed on base. Yeah. But I'd, I'd go to the library on a day off and find a, a good mystery novel, and mm -hmm. I'd sit there and read the whole book. Oh, wow. You know. And there's always a cute little, you know, US, USO, you know, volunteer right. was there, you know, young gal. And they had coffee and iced tea and stuff that they'd bring in. Yeah. Donuts, you know, and so got the name, you know, from back in all the wars, you know, the donut dollies. Oh, okay, yeah. So they didn't like being called that, no. but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but at NKP, I lived in a tent, like you started to describe it. Very, okay. very similar to what they had on MASH. Right. Except we weren't allowed to have a still. No, no stills? <laughs> Dang it. I hate that. But there were, the tents were big enough to hold, I think, eight or ten okay. people, but there were only four in the tent that I was in. Because they put us in tents because there wasn't any room up on the hill on the main part of the base. The, the hooches were all full. Okay. And so I had, had, we had to, those of us came back from Ubon. They got put in the tents until they could find rooms for us. So we were, we were, I was only in the tents for about a month. Okay. So, but it so made, one big room, basically. Yeah. And with, uh, with bunk beds. Yeah. So they had, I think there was like five sets of bunk beds. Okay. It could have been more, but they, and again, they were hot because you got canvas over the top of you and, and yeah. screens on the side. But, and you had to worry about snakes. Did. In fact, one day at lunch, we the three of us that were in that tent went back down, and uh, the we had houseboys, mm -hmm. local guys that were hired. And it cost us like cost each of us like two dollars a month hmm. to go toward paying a houseboy, and the houseboy you know made our beds, uh, did the linen exchange you know for sheets, uh, did our laundry, and polished our boots. Wow, so that like that was a lot of they were making a lot of money, you know, for yeah for for a tie, yeah. So two dollars, two fifty a month per person, that was that was a lot of money. Yeah, and they spoke English. Okay, you know, not real good English, but you know, they spoke pretty good English. And in fact, most people in in Thailand, very very seldom you come across someone who didn't know enough English that you, you know you could carry on a conversation. Oh wow. But the, the houseboys were just going crazy when we got down there. And we kept trying to calm them down, and they were so excited they were only speaking Thai. We, we couldn't get them to switch. And finally, they just kept pointing at this one tent. It was the one next to, to mine. Right. And they kept pointing at it. So we went in, and there was this big python. Oh, wow. That was in there at the center pole. Yeah. It was kind of wrapped around the center pole. I'd never seen a snake that big. <laughs> but... Uh, but we had, we had pythons and you know we had yeah. cobras and you know all kinds of snakes around there. 
panthers or something too, right? Uh, tigers. Tigers. Yeah. Yeah, you could hear the tigers at night in the tents. We were out by the perimeter, mm -hmm. and you know, so we were really close to the to the jungle, and you could hear tigers out there at night snarling, and you okay. know they were hunting. Oh, jeez! But uh, after we saw that snake, we called well, we called security police, right. and they came, and these three guys showed up, and they were able to unline the snake, and it was probably about ten foot long. Wow! And they carried it out. To where the tree line was and turned it loose and so to go back to the jungle after that we all started sleeping with knives under our pillows <laughs> <laughs> make sure you didn't get a hug in the middle of the night yeah just in oh case my gosh. yeah that's crazy so how how long were you were you over there i was i got there first of february of 69 and i was only there until mid-august okay and that's when uh, I'd been down to the slot car track, and I was in a hooch by then, up on the hill, and the first sergeant had the, the room next to me. And I, I came back from the slot car tracks, and he heard me open my door, and he hollered over. He says, Lee, is that you? And I said, yes, Arch. He says, uh, Red Cross uh, has an emergency message for you. You need to get in touch with Red Cross. And he had a phone in his room. He was the only one in the squadron who had a phone, of course. And uh, so he let me use his phone to call Red Cross. And the guy, you know, told me to meet him in his office. He told me where his office was, meet him there in, in 20 minutes. And this is about around 6 o'clock in the evening, I guess. Pouring down rain, monsoon-type rain. Hmm. And the dirt at NKP was red. It was red mud. And hmm. the longer you walked, the taller you got. Oh, the, the mud sticking to your bottom of your boots. And... Uh, he wouldn't come pick me up, even though he had a pickup, you know, <laughs> a government pickup. It was like four block distance to where right. his office. So I walked down there, and uh, he slid this paper across the desk to me and told me, he says, your wife's been involved in an auto accident, and uh, she's not expected to survive. Hmm. And the Red Cross, you know, the, do the doctors notified the Red Cross, and you need to come home to make arrangements for care of your son. And to make arrangements for your for your spouse, and so I, you know, and that's all the all the news he had. Yeah. And so I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I went back to my room, and the, again the first sergeant heard me coming, and he already knew. Okay. The Red Cross guy had told him. Right. But it had to be Red Cross that gave me the telegram. Right. And uh, we had a telephone system over there that was ran by. Uh, amateur radio people and it's called the Mars station military radio something hmm. network or system but uh, you could go in there and you tell them where you were from you know and what what phone number you wanted to call mm -hmm. and then they would get on on their ham radios and they would contact someone in the nearest town who was on the radio and, and for my case it was someone in Tacoma okay and I, I was trying to call my mom in Wenatchee. And so they they got this guy in Tacoma. He would then do a long-distance phone call to where he wanted to go, you know, who he wanted to talk to, and it would be patched through from Thailand to his radio, and then he would patch it through the phone. And so I, I got a hold of my mom, mm -hmm. and she told me that, that uh, Grace was doing, doing well. She didn't tell me what all the injuries were. Right at the time, so I didn't know how severe it was, but did she did say she that uh, she had a change of doctors, mm 
and so she was doing well and, and was going to survive. Okay. And so I went back to, and at that time we were, you were only allowed three, a three minute phone call mm-hmm. once a day. Okay. To give time for everybody, because you went in in this little booth when you're talking on the phone, when you got through talking, you'd say over, right. you know, like you're talking on a yeah. on a radio, like a ship to shore yeah. phone call kind of a deal. But yeah. the the first sergeant, when he he told me, he says, you know, go over to Mars and and call home. He said, I've already notified him you're coming. He says, and you can make as many calls as you need to, hmm. and talk as long as you want. Hmm. So then I I got back to my room and. In the first sergeant, Sergeant Lee, is that you? <laughs> yes, sergeant. He says, uh, get everything packed up. He says, uh, someone will come in the morning about 7.30, pick you up and take you down to base ops and put you on a C-130 to Bangkok. Hmm. And, uh, and it took all day, of course, to get the C-130 base opt. Right. And so it took all day to get to Bangkok. And I got to the airport at Dong Mong Air Base. And went in and and told the guy was on emergency leave, which gives you priority on, on military air, contracted flights, everything. And uh, he told me, he says, you're in luck. He says that DC nine sitting out there was supposed to leave two hours ago. He said, but they had doing the engine change. It's going to be leaving in about two hours. Oh, he wow. says, he says you're on it. So, I got on that and plane stopped in Okinawa for an hour. And then we flew on to Travis Air Base, California. It was a 19-hour flight. Hmm. I was sitting next to two young kids, Navy dependents, who were flying back to the States for school. Okay. And we sit beside two kids. They were like, you know, 9 and 11 years old. Yeah. Made the flight a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Then I got to San Francisco, or I got to... To Travis Air Base, and it just happened my friend Keith from mm-hmm. Ogden was stationed there, and we kept in touch by mail. So I, I had his phone number, so I called him. Came over at like two in the morning. Came over and picked me up, and by the time he got back to the house, Barb had cooked up some scrambled eggs and bacon, and you know, so give me something to eat. Hmm. And, and he drove me back to base ops. They didn't have any flights going to McCord, mm-hmm. so I. Caught a shuttle bus to the airport in San Francisco. And by now I've been traveling two days. You know, haven't shaved. I'm, my uniform is looking kind of rumpled. And, <laughs> and I'm kind of rumpled. And, and uh, I get to the airport. And in Thailand, we only got paid once a month. Right. And all my, all my paycheck went home. I mean, I kept my overseas pay, which was $60 a month. Right. So that's that That was all I needed to live on. And uh, it was mid-month, <clears throat> so we were away from payday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had like $35 when I left Thailand. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to, well, I smoked at that time. So mm-hmm. when we got to Okinawa, I got off and got a soda and a pack of cigarettes. Because you could smoke on airplanes. Right. <laughs> and, uh. Went to the airline, one of the airline counters, and told them I was you know, on emergency leave. I needed a flight to SeaTac. Mm-hmm. And by then, I think I had $29 left. And he told me the ticket was like $34. Mm. And I said, I, I said, I don't have enough money. He said, well. Right. So 
you know, what do I do? So I, I start walking around the airport. And I'm just walking loops. I'm trying to figure out, I'm just the point where I was going to start panhandling. Right. Just ask people, you know, can you, can you spare a dollar? Right. You know, which would be a really good image for a, an Air Force <laughs> staff sergeant in uniform to be begging for money at the airport. Uh, and uh, I would just walk around. This one security policeman, Air Force security policeman, kept watching me. Every time I go by, he'd watch me. And one time he says, Sarge, can I talk to you? I thought, Dan, this is just what I need is some cop to give me a hassle because I've got two days' worth of beard. Right. My uniform looks, you know, like I've slept in it, which I had. Right. You know, and uh, I'm thinking, myself, I just don't need this. Right. So I went over. He says, your name Lee? I said, yeah. He says, a while back, he said, I heard an announcement from USO for a Staff Sergeant Lee to come to the USO counter. Oh. So I went over. And it was mom trying trying to find out where I was. Yeah. And uh, so the at the USO counter, they let me use their phone. And I called mom, and I told her, I said, I don't have any, I don't have enough money for a plane ticket. Yeah. I said, I'm gonna, you know, I'll go start, you know, begging for money. And she says, No, she's all, I'll go to Western Union, and send you fifty dollars. I said, Okay, great. So I told the people, and I told them, you know, they sent it to the USO. Right. So I told them that my mom, what my mom was going to do, and they said, okay, we'll be on the lookout for it, and if we don't see you around, we'll page you. Right. And I said, great. So I started walking again, because I didn't want to spend any money. Right. And so I just kept walking around the airport. And it was after about an hour, I went back to USO, you know, you heard anything yet? Nope, nothing yet. I said, okay. I'm going to walk around some more for an hour, go back, nothing yet. And it ended up being, it was like four hours oh, wow. since I talked to mom. And I called her, and she said, yeah, she said I sent it. And she said it would only take an hour. Yeah. I said, well, it's four hours. The bunny's not here yet. Yeah. And she said, well, let me see. You know, let me call him. And so I, I said, okay, I'll call you back in a, in a little bit. And I went by the ticket counter again. Mm -hmm. And it was a different person working there. They'd had shift change. I'd been right. in the airport so long. <laughs> and... uh I went up to the counter again. I, I was just, I looking at, at the flights, and the guy asked me, he said, can I help you? And I said, no, I, said, I don't have enough money for a ticket. He said, well, where are you going? I said, I need to go to Seattle. And I said, I'm on emergency leave. So he got on his thing, and he said, well, I, said, I got a seat on the next airplane. I said, well, I don't have enough money. He says, he said, how much do you have? And I said, I got just over $29. He said, the ticket's twenty seven fifty. Oh. I said, what? <laughs> The other guy, I guess, didn't know about emergency leaves, and he was telling me the, the, the half-price military rate. Oh, jeez. He, you know, if he done it, would have understood, you know, or would have known about emergency leave policy, I would have been in Seattle and probably in Wenatchee even by then. Oh, my gosh. So the guy, the guy behind the counter just felt terrible. Oh. So he got, got me my ticket, and I called Mom. Still, the money hadn't arrived, and I thought, so I'm, I'm getting on a plane. I'll... And then I called my stepmom, Maggie, because mm -hmm. they lived in on what we called the coast in, in, in Pacific, <laughs> and told her what time I'd get to SeaTac. And she said, okay, I'll pick you up, drive you straight to the hospital in Wenatchee. And it just worked out as I came out of baggage claim, because I only had just one little little bag, she came around the loop. And I got in the car and I said, how many times did you have to make the loop? She said, I just got here. Oh, wow. And we headed straight to Wenatchee and straight to the hospital and went in and talked to your mom.
Hmm. But I was a little bit shocked when I saw her, but because she was in traction. Yeah. And you probably heard the traction was bongs in the her, in the top of her head and her right. skull, and strapped down to what we called the ironing board. Yeah. So they could tilt her toes, and she her head was shaved pretty much. She had shorter hair than I do. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. well, she she'd broken her neck. Yeah. Yeah, she broke her jaw in two places, her lower jaw in two places. Uh, one vertebrae in her neck shattered. Yeah. Uh, she broke some ribs, punctured a lung, hmm. and developed pneumonia. Oh. And that's when they thought she wasn't going to make it, because yeah. she was so beat up. That, but, uh, yeah, she she survived it all. And as you know now, she's, yeah. you know, you, you really couldn't tell all the injuries that that poor woman had. It's It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah uh, she yeah she went through so many surgeries. Yeah, just... yeah, spent spent quite a few years in, or I don't know how many years, but a lot of time anyway at Wilford Hall in San Antonio. Yeah, I remember being in there. All the hand, all the hand uh, plasters, and uh, a lot of them were hers. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of them weren't, but it was... yeah, she must have had five surgeries at Wilford Hall. Yeah, and she had some at at. Uh, Fairchild, because I, I ended up getting a humanitarian assignment. I didn't go back to Thailand. Yeah. I got a humanitarian reassignment to Fairchild, which was what, 170 miles from Wenatchee, closest closest base to the hospital. Right. And then once the doctors uh, were going to release her, and she was a big in a big iron brace that with a chest plate and a back piece that she had to wear 24 hours a day. But the doctors said they would would release her when I got base housing. Mm. And so I went into the housing office and had my orders and showed him the letter from the doctor. He said, well, Sarge, you just turned to number one on the list. He said, I got two houses. Go look at them, see which one you want. Wow. And I picked the one that was outside the back gate, and it was new-style housing, brick, you know, duplex-style right. with a garage. Wow. You know, and it was only a couple blocks from the base hospital. Nice. So picked that one. And so then I was able, able to go over and get your mom and— have our furniture and stuff delivered to the base. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that uh, yeah must have been some tricky times. I don't remember. I don't remember much about that. I was two, two, yeah, two when that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, that uh, yeah, she got run over by a, a moving truck. Oh, no, wasn't it? Or it, a, it was her dad's uh, ranchero. 50, oh, it was it ranchero? Fifty-nine okay. ranchero. In fact, you had had some. Yeah, part in that. <laughs> the guy was in, the guy was the instigator of the yeah. of the wreck. So yeah. yeah, she'd pulled into a friend's gravel driveway, mm -hmm. put the car in park, and of course that was before kids had to be you know, strapped down in the back seat. Yeah, and she was leaning against the car, and you scooted over to get closer to her and reached down to grab onto something. You knocked the shifter into reverse. And yeah. And she tried to get in, got knocked over, and went underneath the, the car and got drugged down the driveway and crossed the road and over a small embankment. Yeah, bob wire fence, I think, was involved in yeah. there somewhere. And Yeah. And, of course, you immediately got back over and sat down where you were supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if she would have just let the car roll, it would have it just rolled to a stop. And yeah. Everything would have been fine, but All the, you, don't get to, you don't get to make those decisions. Yeah, the, the, the mama bear instinct. Kicked in. And she uh, had to had to protect her kid. And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. 
but uh, but all eventually it took a long time, but eventually it, it ended well. It worked out. Yeah. She went about through about two years or or more, three years maybe. Yeah. No, well, almost. Yeah, three years. About three years having surgeries. Yeah. So that concludes part A of our uh, interview with Dad, Papa Paul, and uh, we'll finish this up next week. Thanks for listening. Look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.